0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
1: Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. XM. Coming to you from the Business Radio studios in Huntsman Hall. That's the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, West Philadelphia. Cade Massey hosting today with the whole crew. Eric Bradlow is to my left. Audie Weiner straight away. And Shane Jensen to the right in their regular seats. We're delighted to be here as a group. We're delighted to be in person. We are not often together in person. Though we've been on a good run this spring. We've had a good little stretch. This is going to be the last one for a while. We will be back here every week. Somebody is here almost every week. Usually a bunch of us. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon as we typically do these days. The show will go up. Tomorrow morning on SiriusXM, we replayed a few times with those guys. We'll get the podcast posted as well. We have a usual show today in that we have guests in quarters two and three. I think we're going to run Dan Rappaport. the conversation with Dan Rappaport, Golf writer, boy wonder golf writers, burst onto the scene in the last couple of years. We've had him on the show a bunch over the last couple of years. Terrific observer of the golf world. And then... Uh, another kind of multi-sport writer, Kirchner, freelance writer, 538, going to talk a little golf, going to talk a little college football. I suspect his home sport, I would say, that's going to be Q3. And then we'll come back to open lines in Q4. Kicking it off, open lines in Q1. I'm curious, gentlemen, there are some sports to think about. They're all kind of interesting right now, I would say. Some historical. Level right historically historical interesting? Yeah. What's historically interesting? The NHL Sean? has at least three historical aspects this season. Let's hear about it.
2: Well, let's start with the one probably most people are tracking the most is the Boston Bruins have now won the most games of any t- team in NHL history regular see, season see, games.
1: Shane, that's easy. I can take games because the yep. points thing always kind of throws. Yeah, no, me off.
2: and I mean it's worth talking about that a little bit. But they do now have <laughs> the most wins. Just the um, I mean, simple
1: most wins ever.
2: I'm going to complicate it, though, okay. a little bit. All right. So, I mean, you know, so they're at 63 wins now, and that is more than, te- you know, Tampa Bay Lightning had the previous wins record in 2018-2019 at
1: 62 wins. By the way, 63 wins out of, what, 82 games? 82. In 82, 82 games.
2: Okay. The, two to go. In terms two, of, in,
1: 63 out of 80 so far. In go.
2: terms of points, they're one point behind the 1976-77 Canadians, which are regarded best team probably of all time. They have the points record of 132 points. In 80 games. So, okay. and, uh, so, there, you know, there's no like, Oh, you're Boston not Bruins are asterisk. You're, you're not, you're <laughs> oh, all... already off that pace. They no. didn't, they didn't make it to 132 in 80 games. No, no, no. But I
0: know, I just want to comment. <laughs> yep. When we used to, we always <laughs> talked about the asterisk next to the home runs record. Like, you know, I remember Aaron Judge got to what? Did he get to 61 and 154? Didn't Aaron Judge get to 61 and 154? Yes, He did. He did. So I thought you were the one that always talked about no asterisk. So if they get to 133 points, don't they have the record? There's no asterisk, right?
2: They have the record.
0: Well I mean, I guess I'm, I'm
2: trying to kind of – I'm trying to give a little bit greater context. I love it. Of, you know – The most kind of like, you know, I mean, we'd be tempted right now to call the Boston, this current Boston Bruins team, one of the best teams of all time. And I'm kind of, I think the two kind of most relevant comparison teams, at least that we've been discussing in terms of records, are that Tampa Bay Lightning team for a few years ago and this 70s Montreal team. I'm going to give a couple other kind of additional.
1: Real quickly, what, again, the year for that Montreal? 76, 77. How many Richards were on that team? Zero Richards. There was a Lafleur. Okay.
2: There was a lot of I think. There was a lot of liz, but no, ris- <laughs> no Richard. Let me ask you Wait, on, were long on, gone by hold
1: then. Hold on. I want to observe one thing that we, this asterisk conversation yeah? brings to mind. The biggest guilty party not using asterisk where they should be using asterisk on this front is the NFL. I mean, when we grew up, they played 14 games, right. and they've been playing 16 for a long time, and now we've moved to 17. I mean, this changes all the records all the time. Yeah, I know, and what nobody... I mean, I think,
2: I, I think this asterisk, I mean, I you notice I never use the word asterisk. Bradlow brought the asterisk, and that's because Bradlow and Audie are obsessed with baseball, where asterisks are used most often, because baseball is a sport <laughs> where people want to kind of... Keep things are, the same. Are, well, because the, the sport, <laughs> the sport at least, they, they deny the massive amount of changes that have gone on during baseball history. They want to kind of basically be what if? What would this? How does this person compare to Babe Ruth? Even though there's 80 years of ensuing whatever, comparing to the '76, '77 Montreal Canadiens is fraught with danger because the sport
1: has changed dramatically. Okay, so, I mean, that's, recognizing this, is, this that. is
3: a good thing. So. Help me out. Tell me the ways in which it's changed. I don't know enough about hockey to know mm-hmm. automatically. Let's know. Tell me why. Let's overall, know. When, we go,
1: when we go back that far to talk about the Canadians, we're going halfway back to Babe Ruth. We talked. We think, yep. Yeah, so, it's so, nothing. that's right. All right, so tell me how it's changed.
2: Well, Key inter- goal scoring, overall goal scoring. So the Bruins are an incredibly defensive team. That's really kind of been their main success this season. Yes, yeah. yeah, so I put
0: in the rundown. They're yeah. not actually the top offensive team yeah. in the league. Matter of fact, they, they're half a goal wait, less. So, so they are
2: among back the... Back like, in the
3: Canadians and people didn't know about defense?
0: No, they just idea. scored more, and the rules cha- the rules fun. have changed. The rules, okay,
3: the have, rules changed have changed since
2: changed. then to suppress scoring in various ways, and and defensive strategy has improved overall since then as well. Uh, but you know, I mean, one thing we could look at but like so. For example, the Bruins, even though they're you know mostly defense, they have the probably the greatest goal differential. They certainly compare to that Tampa Bay team, they're way higher in terms of goal differential. They've been dominant. They're the most dominant team of the. Modern um, era,
1: didn't you say they're almost twice the next team?
2: Yeah, no, their their goal difference right now is 124. Second to fourth place are 16 to 61. Unbelievable. Wow, unbelievable! Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, you want do, you, but
1: does, doesn't that give you confidence about what they're going to do in the playoffs? I mean, that kind of goal difference, yeah, shouldn't man. that be predictive?
2: That should be, and certainly Tampa Bay was much less than that. The Canadians, 216 goal difference in 80 games <laughs> in two last games.
1: What? What?
2: <laughs> So again, the Boston Bruins are twice the next team at 124. The Canadians in that season 216. 75% more. Yeah. Oh, my In two goodness. less games. <laughs> so I mean, it's just a, a different type of, you know, that so, this is the most dominant team in the modern era, and I date the modern era in hockey as Gretzky, pre and post Gretzky basically, um, like 1980 or so. So
3: what happened uh, in Gaul? and in like hockey? The, like before that Christ all of a and after Christ score goals. What was what what changed? That Is it the style of play? Well, yeah, I
2: mean, through the Gretzky era, it's actually, I mean, goal goal scoring actually went up in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, It started getting suppressed from then. A, they expanded and diluted the talent pool a little bit. So there's that. So And and worth noting, the Canadians played at a time, I think there was maybe 12 teams in hockey or 16 teams back in the 70s. So it's a different, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of dominance. Um, And then there's things like the neutral zone trap and kind of just sort of defensive, essentially defensive strategy and... And stuff like that that kind of brought down goal scoring.
0: Could you? So let me ask you. One, are you indifferent from. Also, a, at less power plays. A, uh, are you indifferent from a team strength point of view how those 130 something points come about? Like, let me give you an example. Just so everyone knows, you get two points for a win. It's my understanding you get one point for an overtime win. Yeah. Okay. So let's imagine. No,
2: one point for an overtime loss.
0: For no, sorry, for an overtime loss. Overtime win counts as a win. Yeah, wins a win. So one way you could get to 132 would be to have 60 clean wins and 12 overtime, or sorry, 12 overtime losses. You could also have what it turns out the. Bruins may end up with, which is 64 or 5 wins and only 5 overtime losses, which is another way to get to 133. Yeah. Are you indifferent? Are they basically the same? Like It's just total, it's, is total it's such a small a percentage summary. of
2: their actual wins. I'm fairly indifferent. Worth noting again, they did yeah, not have exactly. overtime wins That's in new. the 70s. Montreal, you know, the reason Montreal... Right, they just Latin, lost. The reason that Canadian's <laughs> right. team has the point record but not the win record is that they didn't have the opportunity to try and win in overtime mm. like modern teams do. They just had to take the tie. Yeah.
1: So they well, did, th- There know. was also a period where... So definitely t- they,
2: that Montreal team has the
0: record for wins in regulation.
1: So there was a stretch, long stretch, where they played overtime, but they didn't give you mm-hmm. a point for losing. They screwed yeah. up the incentives too yeah. much for how overtime was played. Yeah. So
0: if a team was 66-16 well, in the new 66 and 16 would be the same to you as 60, 10, and 12.
4: Yeah,
2: more or less. I yeah. mean, you're just kind of taking, you're basically taking those extra tie games and making some little coin yeah. flips, like arbitrary, not really hockey-related coin flips. No, I don't think there's any predictive ability. And as far as their success in the playoffs, well, I mean, I love this historical comparison to Tampa Bay and these Montreal Canadiens, because in the Tampa Bay case, they lost in the first round. <laughs> These Montreal Canadiens swept through the playoffs, too. They lost two games in three series of the Of course they, they did. Of they, course they, they did. They okay, completely. so given
1: so given the dominance you've just described, yep. in, intuitively, what probability do you think the Bruins should have for winning the whole thing? So let's get base rates. How many teams from the NHL are in the playoffs?
2: Well, it's, uh, it's a full 16.
1: 16 out of 30, so like more than half. Yeah, make the slightly playoffs, more right? than half. Okay, so base really, rate, if, was, weird thing. if it was truly a coin flip, base rate here would be 6 point whatever yes. they have. Yeah, 6.25, yeah. Okay, so how much probability, without looking at models and, and websites, what probability do you feel the Bruins should have for the win? Let's it, all
0: come up with one. Sure. Know, well,
1: unfortunately, I've looked at the website. Okay, but I've yes, got y'all, one. y'all come up with one.
0: I've got one. What do you to got? To win the Stanley Cup. To win. Okay, I've got it. Okay. I've got an estimate. I'll give mine 15. I was going to get... Uh,
1: even after the dominance, I'm, you just it. More yeah. I doubling
0: well, it. I was... See, that's, by the way, I just want to say, 15. I was using the same logic <sighs> as Shane. I was going to multiply by a certain oh. factor. So my factor was three. So I was going to go up to 18.75%. Okay,
3: okay. Okay, yeah. Adi. I was gonna go over twenty because you pitched me on such an awesome exactly. team nice. and I got yeah, sold by That's your excitement awesome. that I was I was great with team. you. I was yep. ready to put down half my fortune. <laughs> yeah, which Kelly Betting would say not to do, so <laughs> yeah. I'll partial Kelly it all the way back to twenty two percent. Now I did cheat um and looked looked at the ads, but I at the odds, but uh so what anyway. did the odds
1: say because five thirty I've never looked at five thirty NHL site before, but I did just now and they had the Bruins at thirty eight percent to win. Thirty eight percent. Holy shit.
3: Ridiculous. <laughs> well, that so, means
1: th- so by the way, but they, it's really steep because they've only got three. We said 6% was base rate. They only have three teams above base rate. So it's all the excess probably goes to the Bruins. The Avs at about half of that, 17%. And the Oilers at just a touch above base rate yeah. with 9%.
0: That's amazing. That And all it's the rest. All,
1: yeah, it's all stacked yeah. up on two teams and right. most of that on one team. What is
0: their odds? Let me ask a question. What's their odds of making the finals?
1: 53%.
0: So that means they're giving them a 70 over 70% that's chance insane. to win if they that's make insane. the finals cuz 70 times 0. 0.53 We're is 37%. That's... Wow. You know, they
2: well, are they are obviously double in goal differential. the second to fourth place teams. Two of those four teams are in the East though. The okay, Devils so and the, Rangers so are the, are the tup- next team. The tougher thing
3: is they to have come out competition. of these supposedly, okay? So uh, what I'm reading here is plus 350 which translates to well plus 400 is 20% so plus 350 23% so or the something. betting odds are around the there. betting odds are exactly right than that. now okay. that tends to be an overestimate because they pay you the, out at a at a worse odds than true because yeah. they all sum to greater than 1 yeah. knocking it down the vig maybe 18 to 22 in that wow. range that's so a big difference it's from a, their model and way, hey lower. If you're, if you're believing 538, you should be putting buying, your, guys, your yeah. buying and buying and buying and buying and buying.
2: Okay, interesting. I want to talk about a couple individual performances that are also historical. Mm-hmm. Connor McDavid, I think we've heard a little bit about, but he did become the sixth player in NHL history to reach 60 goals and 150 points. Only the sixth player ever to do that. Um, so that's pretty impressive. If he gets, uh, I guess, five more points in his last uh, two games, he'll be a top 15 season of all time.
1: Okay, so real quick, let's put that in context. He he plays for the Oilers, right? Yeah, that's right. They're they're seen right now, at least by 538, as the second most likely team to come out of the West, Mm -hmm. follow the Avs, and one of only three teams above base rate of winning the whole thing. So at least we get to watch this guy play. No, no,
2: and I mean, it's super. If it really comes down to Oilers' Avs, it's worth pointing out that there's, I think, 15 players in the NHL with over 100 points this year, five of them. Five of the ten. No, there's ten. There's ten players with over 100 points this year in hockey. Five of them are playing tonight in the ABS versus the Oilers regular season. <laughs> really? Five of the ten top 100, All over right. 200 point players are on those two teams. So, okay. so yeah. again. Four. So you know they, you you can imagine. Whoever's coming out of the West, especially if it's one of those two, is going to be this high-scoring thing that's going to try and hit that Bruins defense.
0: So let me ask you a, a question that relates also to do you care about wins. Um, someone scores 150 points. Do you care what mix of goals and assists they have, and does that say something about them? Like, Would you be more impressed with 75-75 than 60-90? I would assume yes.
2: Yes, because it carries other players with you. So, for example, Connor McDavid does a lot. You know, it's impressive. His 150 is 60 it's like sixty goals and ninety assists, or whatever. Oh,
0: you wouldn't be more impressed with someone with seventy-five goals and seventy-five assists? I mean, I guess
2: the seventy-five goals is maybe more unique, but I, you know, again, I think they're the 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 playmaker ability of things is is more, I think, team complementary. I look at somebody like so a better comparison, a good kind of paired comparison for this is: Would you rather have Sidney Crosby or Alexander Ovechkin? Ovechkin is a pure goal score right. and is much more likely to kind of be in that 75-75... I mean, he would never have that Just many Just so what
0: historically, like Gretzky, bit... Lemieux, were they like one and a half assists for every goal somewhere in that range? Does that sound about right?
2: Two to two and a half assists for every goal for oh, Gretzky, I think. Yeah, so you yeah. think
0: Gretzky had like I mean, Gretzky, six or seven hundred goals and like yeah, 15, I mean, 1600 he, assists? Yeah, I mean,
2: he was like more in the 70 to 80 goal range, but he was getting like two hundred po- over 200 oh, points. so, so it's getting, like okay. Yeah, it's like twice as many assists as quick,
1: goals. Quick reminder... Hockey assist means that there are two assists on every goal, right? or up to two. Up is to that two. right? Up, up to, two. Two. If up to the, two. The guy making the pass to the guy who makes the pass, if there yeah, is such yeah, a yeah. pass.
2: Yeah, yeah, That's right. Or some goals okay. don't have any assists if it's so a takeaway or a this. Analytically,
1: something like that. I mean, this, the, I mean this, is, this is a really dumb question, but we should know something about. That Eric's question in the model right. for a value of a player, yeah, no,
2: and I, I think basically, kind of, uh, I guess I value the kind of a diversity of both kind of scoring ability and playmaking ability. Okay, that's, so that's and your that's your things, that's your intuition,
1: yeah. but this is baked into models now. They're guys, I mean, modelers are valuing players based on their performance, and so there's a coefficient on goals and there's a coefficient on assists yeah. in, in these models. I'd be we'd be curious to know. I
2: just you know I I, I bet you those models are all additive. I'm saying assist kind of are indications of more super additive interaction effects like Connor mcdavid is also the reason that drasdell is like above 100 points it's like
1: you know i would hope a model would catch that i would hope a model would get that are we not there maybe a model
2: with like pairwise interactions between maybe i bet you those models are mostly linear and additive if i had to guess
1: okay Okay. The Pitchers other thing just worth pointing out,
2: and this is an <laughs> indications maybe we're in a new goal-scoring era. Eric Carlson, I just want to mention, this is the least impressive, but still impressive, is the first defenseman in 30 years to have a 100-point season. He plays for San Jose Sharks. He's not You're not going to see him in the playoffs. He played for a terrible team. But it has been since basically the early 90s that a defenseman has scored now that you many can, points. Now, you
0: can educate us again. So, like, I know in, like, soccer, other sports, like, if someone wants to play, like someone pe- assigned to play defense, but they actually just move up on the field, like if they're like, they could dribble, you know what I'm saying? They can move up someone. So in hockey, I understand what it means to be a defenseman. I do. But <laughs> can't a defenseman, like couldn't a team have their defenseman play more forward than others? Yeah. And so and the fact is his defenseman may not be, all defenseman is not equivalent.
2: Oh, no, that's certainly true. Like, again, and he is an elite... uh, Carlson is an elite scoring defenseman to compare him to actually other defensemen who's got more of a primary focus on... I mean, yeah. So, I mean, the position hides nuance. In the same way people like... I. I get triggered when people talk about Travis Kelsey as like, one, you know, a better tight end than Rob Gronkowski. When Travis Kelsey is not actually a tight end, he's a wide receiver with a tight end body. Okay, so, I mean, there's subtlety
1: in how that happens. While, yeah, I get while, it. while all that's true, I'm guessing a bunch of his points come on special teams.
2: Yes, no, I mean, and that's really where defensemen, to the extent that they are scores, it's mostly on power play situations where they're taking shots from the point and stuff like that. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We get shorter rotations in power plays, do they not? I mean, longer rotations, presumably. Longer
2: rotations in games. So typically a hockey team has like four forward lines and only three defensive kind of pairing so they're on the but, ice for longer just in, in general. But in
1: power plays. And
2: in power plays, they shift off a little bit less often just because they're at the point. You know, it's a little bit harder to shift them off, but yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. All right, Shane, awesome rundown for yeah. us, but we're still a couple games away from starting the playoffs, so we'll have more of a playoff primer mm-hmm. next time around. We've got a few minutes in this quarter. What's going on on the baseball front? I know we're still a early. a little early to be talking signal from baseball, but what is jumping out to you guys on the baseball front?
3: Well, obviously stolen bases are up, substantially they're more they're more successful stolen bases today than there were attempts last year <laughs> it's pretty good yeah. um, success rate is high and everyone's talking about what that means analytically like what are you supposed to be thinking about that you that you weren't thinking about in the past there's it's interesting now they only get two throws we get three but the third has to be good otherwise it's a it's a stolen base the the dynamics of that with the pitch clock, when it gets down to the last seconds of the pitch clock, are they going to throw to first? Are they going to throw home? I mean, this mm-hmm. gives you all kinds of timing. This is a and really open for thought about and, that
0: issue about right. the fact is the the runner. No, has to know ha-
3: has yeah. much more and time information it. than much they used more to. The success rate is running in the high eighties. Um, <laughs> I thought it was low eighties. Uh, well, it was high eighties a couple days ago. Maybe it's down to, to low eighties. By the way, one, I mean one basic rule of thumb is two to one is enough to make it valuable. So if your if your success rate is hmm. twice your failure rate, if your sex rate to sixty seven to seventy, then it's a wash. Um, most teams expect higher than that, which is something I don't understand because there's an entertainment value to still in base. So if you can do something over and over again that is least, at least not negative, you should do it all the time, because it's so much fun. They don't that. care about your entertainment. They don't care about entertainment. Yeah. But, but, but actually, one of the most entertaining uh, um, sessions at Sloan was the discussion of the new rules in baseball, where essentially, whereas baseball had to was force-fed the idea well, that it the, was that's an the entertainment. League, that's league level the league versus level. a
1: manager level decision.
3: But uh, I've actually I've always argued that the teams have stolen too little. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's great to see it happening. And I mean... It, it matters. I mean, there we. I just lost the Yank, Yanks. Lost a game. They, they, these are ga- happening regularly. Games that are with runs that are earned by walks, stolen bases. Yeah, this new brownie guy.
2: All the four times he's been on base this season, yeah, he's, he's stolen three yeah, out of he's four. A, so, he's a little so,
1: early, isn't he? So, <laughs> so,
2: you
3: really, you're <laughs> on a Boston kick. But uh, speaking no. of Boston, so we talked
1: about on. yesterday. I don't know Tawny kick. Spectacular <laughs> article on the stolen base thing in the Athletic. Out, and like, I don't know, today, yesterday, Ken Rosenthal wrote this yeah. thing. Long one. The Yankees show up prominently in it, and they talk about not just the uptick in still stolen bases and the connection to the rules, but also some new techniques. And they talk about franchises taking a bigger interest in like experimenting in the minor leagues. Super interesting dive. So the long into term that.
2: effects might be even a couple years off.
3: We might be well, 100%. I think what the teams have recognized before now is that there's more opportunity, more positive upside, more t- and therefore possibly worth the investment. So
1: uh, you said that you have long argued people should steal more. Teams should steal more. Yes. Is there any connection between a reluctance to run? And the conservatism we see in other sports, like the reluctance to adopt three point line, the, the reluctance to go for it on fourth down, that kind of thing, over time.
3: Well, it's interesting because base running used to be much more common in the past. But what and so actually, I think the role of analytics is really key here because the fundamental wisdom had become that many people run way too much. Historically, run running was was more. I mean, look, look at Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson when he stole 150 some odd, 130, 100, I 100, think he was 130. He also got caught an incredible number of times. And if you actually look at his total value, it's positive, but it's not enormous by any stretch. And so even the world's greatest baseball base runners just weren't. chasing. he is the world's greatest <laughs> base runner. <laughs> by well, right? Let's also remember, Adi, a
0: home run with a guy on first and second still scores the same number of runs. That's so there's right. also this lore that, so if I steal second, I single him home. But who's hitting for single? Yeah, I, mean, right. I,
2: I think you know you got to understand that the value of a stolen base, that two-thirds, one-third, that's presumably based on a particular rate of people getting on base oh, or not all right that matters, and, that, yeah. and, that, and that's a movie. that's kind of an evolving well, thing just right a, now just as, as, well. a,
3: as just a simple thing it all has to do with game state and expected runs by game state so a stolen base with with uh no outs oh. is 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 valuable but getting caught with no outs is terrifying <laughs> i mean it's terrible i mean so and this is part of the, the downside so if you get caught with no outs that costs your team Quite a bit of value, and yeah. You'd and have I mean,
2: to... I mean, we, we're again looking at twenty years of the types of people that get on base are like the Kevin Euclises or whatever the like. It's like for a long time people right, for the last twenty well. <laughs> years people haven't been stealing base a lot because. A, we have this lore that stolen bases aren't that valuable, but the types of people over the last 20 years getting on base are not necessarily the types Fast. of people you'd want trying to steal Historically, bases. Historically, the
3: people who got on base a lot were people who beat out infield hits.
2: Yeah. Right.
3: Because walks. I mean, one of my favorite anecdotes which is from Joe DiMaggio, who said... the. Fans don't pay me to to see me walk. Almost like a like a softball game. And he walked extremely little. His view was I am here to hit. Mm-hmm. And so great hitters were there to put the ball in play. We'll
0: have to have an entire show on the lores on the old themes of baseball that have changed yeah. under the new model.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Super interesting. For All this right. very unchanging sport. Well this is <laughs> this is very another individual sport. Another dimension of oh hockey. another dimension of baseball that is that is changing and becoming more entertaining this season it sounds like uh yet another frontier which is fun all right guys that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball we still have three quarters ahead of us come back and join us after the break
0: you're listening to Wharton
4: Moneyball on
0: business radio It's great to be back here at Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host, Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics. Some combination of us two, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen, are here every week here on the podcast, or if you're listening directly on the SiriusXM version of Wharton Moneyball. Adi, I've always said the best thing about doing our show. Hard to believe we've passed nine years now. Wow. Yep. We have an age, but... Uh, no, we haven't aged at it, all. Not at all. We not have at all. No great. And you had a birthday <laughs> since our last uh, show. <laughs> I did. Uh, is that we get uh, great guests on the show. And today is not only a great guest, but a great returning guest. Uh, so we're lucky to have Dan Rappaport. Dan is uh, a golf writer at Barstool Sports. He's also the co-host of the 4 Play Pod and a longtime friend of the show. So Dan, uh, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball.
5: Yeah, nice to be back. I think this is the first time we have spoken since I went to the pirate ship of Barcelona Sports. So it's nice to be back. It's nice to know you guys uh I'm still the same person and you guys can see that I appreciate
0: it. Well, that's interesting. Before I even get to talking about golf, why it's interesting, why do you call it the pirate ship? Like what is it about yeah. since I'll throw on my marketing professor hat since I'm the chair of Orton's marketing department. Is there yeah. something about their brand? Like, I don't know, like you guys are Uh, you know out there you guys are swashbucklers you guys are the rogues is there something about the brand how do you think about it
5: yeah i think i think everything that you said is is fair um swashbuckling rogue i think you know dave portnoy the founder kind of sets the tone for all that uh the pirate ship is honestly something that barstool has kind of called itself so it's kind of a self-given title but yeah look definitely disruptive force in media um i think that's obvious and, you know, I think my move there was kind of um, an uh, acceptance of the times that, you know, f- media is changing and, and the landscape is different than what than it is when I went to journalism school. And and, you know, the the way that people consume content is a lot different than it was before. And I'm 28 years old and, and I didn't want to feel like I was stuck in my ways or or playing a an older man's game. So. I still feel really good and excited about the work that I'm doing. It hasn't really changed. It's just sort of a new medium. So where you know before, if the the core offering was writing and articles, now it's videos and podcasts. So hey, look, we're just Adi and I keep up with the times. Adi
0: and I are in the same business that you are. Remember, we're yeah. you know we're both 25 year plus professors, and obviously we write journal articles for a living and we teach in the classroom. But if you had told us we were going to be streaming stuff, doing podcasts, mm-hmm. creating short content videos that are distributed through social media when both of us got our phds we would have been like that's not part of our job no chance no chance that 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 would have been part of our educational mission
5: yeah it's changed a lot short form video is like the number one emphasis for barstool as a company because that's you know in a certain way your first reaction wants to be like oh that's sad or you know it's cringy or whatever it might be but at the end of the day it's sort of a philosophical question of like if that's what people are watching, to some extent, that's what they're liking, and that's how the market works, and who are we or who am I to tell people that, you know what, actually, this isn't good content, and you know we should go back to the, the way it was before. The market sort of speaks for itself.
0: Yeah, one of the things I always tell my students in my MBA classes, if you want a bad business, here's what you do. You send your content through a distribution channel nobody wants, and you tell them, well, we know better, and we're going right. to start selling through this channel. It just doesn't work. You have to sell. You know, you go where the people are.
5: A hundred percent, a hundred percent, and it's like, you know, the scale is just totally different when you when you cross into video and social media. You know, I remember when I was at Golf Digest. You know, you'd be excited if you know 50, 60 thousand people reading an article was was that's a that was a good performance for an article. You know, now, if a video does well, you, might, you know, it might get a million views on TikTok. So it's it's just different.
0: Well, first of all, uh, that wasn't. This is what's so wonderful about our show here on Wharton Moneyball. I can't say I was expecting us to spend the first four minutes talking about barstool sports and different media, but let me just tell you, I think it's just as important as what we're talking about here today in analytics. But let's dive in. So. Um, as everyone knows, I'm a huge golf fan. I watched every single minute of the Masters, which, as you know, <laughs> Dan, was not trivial to do. Given, no, that was hard. I yeah, mean, you were CB, up early. And, I was yeah, up. Was crazy. And, and by the way, I'm including the ceremonial tee shots of Jack Nicklaus, uh, Gary Player, and Tom Watson. I mean, when I say I watched every minute of the Masters, I mean I watched every minute of it. But why don't why don't you first – let's just get the 30,000-foot view. Why don't you tell us your reaction to the Masters this year?
5: Yeah, Strange tournament that, that finished with a bang. I think you, Saturday was not a great experience for the viewer at home. You turn on CBS, I think they showed like five golf shots total, and then they were done. So if you're not someone who's you know dialed in on Masters.com, Saturday was kind of a nothing for you. But Sunday was a marathon, 29 holes, I think it was, that the yep. final group played, and the the weather finally cooperated. You know, Rahm has been the best player in the world for a little while. I think, you know, we're, we're very reactive when it comes to – Golf and it feels like one tournament shifts the entire narrative. So, if you, will, if we were rewind two months ago, Rom was on an absolutely historic pace. He was playing from a strokes gain perspective, the best golf that anyone had played in the post Tiger era, really since 2007, 2008, as far as, you know, him compared to his peers. And then he had a couple bad tournaments. He, you know, he, he finished like 39th, I think it was, in the Arnold Palmer Invitational. He had to withdraw from the players championship in like a stomach bug. Um, And then he did not do well in the match play. And it kind of threw off the scent. Everyone was thinking that Scotty was the favorite, that Rory was, was the second favorite. And it's just incredible how quickly we forget that just two months ago, we were talking about this guy having a season for the ages. And now he's kind of um, on that pace. Again, he's got four wins, including two designated events and the first major of the year. He's already made over $13 million and uh, you know it's he's probably going to be the favorite in the the rest of the three majors. We we have a guy who is back to number one in the world. Him and Scotty have kind of distanced themselves. I think Rory really falls out of that conversation after having missed the cut at the Players and missing the cut at the Masters. But uh, it feels like a
0: fitting champion for the best player to win the biggest tournament of the year. So let's before we dive into the actual tournament itself and the live L I V controversy. Um, just how much do you see as someone that? is an expert and thinks about golf all the time, the difference between winning one major and two majors, how big a difference is it? And how big a difference is it that in some sense, now that he's won the masters, like if you had to pick two, obviously everybody would want the masters to be one of them, but how much of a difference do you see between John Rahm's career? One, ma- one major versus two.
5: Yeah. You know, a player of his caliber is judged by how many majors they win. You know, you ask the average golf fan, how many majors has Jack Nicklaus when everyone knows 18. How many PGA tour events does he win? It's like, uh, I think it's 72. I mean, I'm not even hundred percent sure. That's just kind of the nature of the beast is that if you zoom out from inside the golf world, the, the, the people like yourself, you're, you're a bigger golf fan than than kind of a casual fan, but there's a lot of people who pay attention to golf four times a year. And if you're not performing in those four events, then, you know, you're, you're falling out of kind of the public consciousness. Uh, a lot of guys have won one major, you know, and anyone can get hot for one week. It happens. There's, There's been major winners like Todd Hamilton and Sean McKeel and, you know, Danny, Danny Willett. Willett. Yeah, we wrote that at the same time. Yep, right. It's another one. But but winning two, I think, is, is definitely validation. And, and he's all of a sudden he's halfway to the career grand slam. So we've now got Rory only needs to win the Masters. Um, Brooks is halfway there. Jordan Spieth only needs to win the PGA Championship. And now Rom is halfway there. Uh, and they're uh, all you're chasing... leaving out
0: one other player. You don't know. Mickelson Phil, only Phil, needs Phil. one. He only needs it's the U.S. P- Open.
5: It's possible. But it, it, that's that's the ultimate benchmark in our game is career Grand Slam because only five players have ever done it. It's the ultimate, ultimate benchmark. And you've now got, you know, Phil's obviously in different categories, 52, and and his game does not really fit U.S. Opens at this point in his career, but you've now got three guys in Rom, Spieth, and McElroy, who are all below 35 who are really chasing that kind of white whale. So the game's in a, in a good place. There's like a crew. I think I tweeted something yesterday where it's like, all right, so Brooks has four majors. Um, Rory has four majors. Spieth has three majors. Then you've got... Colin Morikawa has two majors. Justin Thomas has two majors, and now John Rahm has two majors. So oh, you've you're going to leave this... out?
0: You're leaving out Big John Daly. I'm saying of the guys who are I'm kind joking. of between,
5: you know, between 25 and 35, who you know, there's sort of a, an, an elite class that are all trading punches. It's it's fun to watch.
1: Dan, can you give us a little bit of inside scoop or something savvier than we typically think or read about the current status of two of those guys? You've just listed, especially coming through this weekend, Spieth yeah. and McElroy. Spieth and McElroy, can you tell us something we don't know, or can you give us any insight into how people feel like they are directed? I right mean, now? and we
0: know it's been six and eight years, respectively. I think Spieth has won his last major in 2017. I think McElroy might be 2014 or 15. So besides those obvious stats, like it's been a long time and I'm a negative momentum guy, um, uh, uh, yeah, Kate's question is a great one.
5: I, I'm not sure I fully understand the question.
0: Well, so can you tell us some stat or something about their analytics or something about their play or something we don't know There's something
1: behind the curtain or something that the guys are saying about where those guys are? Yeah, I mean, look, Rory.
5: Is, it's been a very, very turbulent year, I would say. Um, he, you know, and 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 some of it is definitely kind of self-imposed or self-caused. He he has really taken it upon himself to be the leader of the kind of pro PGA tour movement in this, in this battle with live golf. He's been the one who's out there answering questions. You know, I would argue it's, it's a little bit unfair uh, how much they've leaned on him. I think Jay Monahan should have been far more visible throughout this whole thing. And, and instead it's kind of falling on the players to answer questions from the media, which is, that's you know, a discussion for a different time, but you know, Rory's always going to get a lot of bets because of the sentimental angle. People really love to root for him and he's an easy guy to root for, but you just you can't miss the cut in the two biggest events of the year so far and be considered one of the best players in the world it's just you just you just can't right we talked about it just a minute ago like if you are going to be judged by your performance in the biggest tournaments you you got to be there for the weekend um as far but, as Jordan but, but Dan goes,
1: but Dan on Rory you know the 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 data say that he's has play, been playing almost at the level of Rahm and Scheffler lately yeah but I mean,
5: not in the biggest tournaments, is that, right? Is like, that
1: really the distinction? So we're going to say we're going to say clutch matters here, and he's really proving to be non-clutch.
5: Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at his numbers right now. It's like all right, the tournaments that he's won, you know, since since the Tour Championship, which was a long time ago, he won the Hero Dubai Desert Classic and the CJ Cup in in South Carolina. Again, I don't want to take anything away from those tournaments, but it's like. There's been two massive events this year. Okay, let's let's even look at... He finished second in the Arnold Palmer Imitational, which was a designated event. The other two designated events he played this year, he finished 29th and 32nd. Okay? He missed the cut at the Players' Championship against the strongest field of the year, and then he missed the cut at the Masters. So, yeah, you know, he's, he's making up ground against weaker fields, like in the CJ Cup and, and the Dubai Desert Classic, but in the tournaments this year... In you know, let's say that there's been five big stroke play events this year where it's been all the best players. He's finished second in one of them. The other four, T29, T32, miscut, miscut. So, you know, you, you have to prove it against the best. As far as Spieth, this past week, he so Rom made 19 birdies in an eagle. Spieth made 21 birdies. There was just as much good as there was... For the for the guy who won the tournament, but he keeps on making knucklehead mistakes, and I just finished making a, a video about this um that we'll post to our social channels at some point. But yeah, every every shot counts the same, right? When you look at the numbers, it doesn't matter if it's a three hundred and fifty yard drive or a, a two inch tap in. But that's not you know golf isn't played a hundred percent on a on a spreadsheet. there We can get into some debates about that this this week because there were some good debates about the third hole, but. On 13, on Thursday, he, he was three under for round. He had just um, made a really nice bogey save on 11. He hit a second shot in the water and got up and down for bogey on 11. So he kind of avoids disaster there. He pars 12, which obviously that hole has given him some issues in the past. And then he pushes his drive into the pine straw on the newly lengthened par five 13. He's got 230 to the flag. It's Thursday. It's Thursday. <laughs> He's on the pine straw. <laughs> and I remember watching him. I'm like, there, he's got to lay. He's laying up. He has to lay up. The hole is longer than it used to be. He's probably hitting four iron, maybe three iron out of the pine straw. And again, it's Thursday. What does he do? He goes for it, hits it in the water, makes double bogey. Uh, and he said, and he said after the round yesterday, he goes, I'm just making so many mental mistakes. And it's like, I had a conversation this week with Paul Tesori, who's who's been a long time caddy on the PGA Tour. He caddy for Webb Simpson for a lot of years. He's now caddying for Cameron Young, who finished in the top ten. And he basically said, these guys try to screw up two or three times around. You really – they know how to play golf. Their instincts are right. But two or three times around, you kind of got to step in and say, listen – I don't think this is the right play. Mm-hmm. And Michael Greller, Jordan's caddy, he tried. Jordan just doesn't listen to him. Mm-hmm. And then after and then after the tournament, he says, you know, I made all these mental mistakes. And it's it's frustrating because I made he made nine birdies on Sunday. You know, he made 21 <laughs> birdies for the week. He's obviously his good holes are good enough, but A lot of golf is about bogey avoidance and he's, he's failing in that
1: department. But amazingly, that seems so correctable. You know, you're, you're not even talking about a missed swing here and there. You're talking about bad decision making. I mean, that is eminently correctable.
5: Right. And it's like, if you know, execution error, that's, that's one thing. Right. If, if you're, if you're committed to the shot and it's the right shot and you make a bad swing, that that's sports like, right. That happens. It's, it's when you you don't set yourself up for success because you you don't understand, like I can guarantee you that if you did a strokes down, strokes gain breakdown of going for it from the pine straw from two thirty with water short, it's like yeah, if you're two back on Sunday and you need to win the tournament, maybe that's the right play. But if you look at your expected score it goes way up. I mean, way up. And so to make that kind of mental rain fart on Thursday is just like it's hard to you think that these guys are, are past that but they're not
0: <laughs> so we're here on Wharton Money Bowl this is Eric Prado I'm here with my co-host Cade Massey and Adi Weiner again some combination of the three of us are in change ends and are here every week here on Sirius XM uh, and we're talking to Dan Rappaport Dan is a golf writer at Barstool Sports and we're obviously talking about golf so can you tell us about What did you think about the importance, if you'd like, of the LIV tour players, live tour players playing well? So obviously we had in the top, I think, five, obviously. We had Kepka came in second we had mickelson who also tied for second and we had patrick reed who i think ended up maybe fourth or fifth and so clearly the live tour players played extraordinarily well do you think Mm -hmm. it was important for the future of that tour or let's not read more into it these were three great golfers before they just happened to play well or do you think it was important for their tour
5: I think it was important for their tour because this was the first Masters since Live Golf had launched. The Masters is by far the biggest golf tournament in the world. And there was a narrative pushed by idiots like myself that maybe these guys, you know, maybe maybe they'd take their foot off the gas. Maybe they're uh, playing 48 against 48 players, 54 whole events, no cut. How are you going to be able to stay sharp? How are you going to be able to... to continue to compete with these guys who are cutting their teeth in, in the cutthroat environment of PG Tour. Well, it turns out they're the same golfers that they were. And that might not that might not be the case forever, but it was a very important showing for them that, you know, the golf that we're playing is serious golf and it's serious competition. Now, I don't think it's going to really change the future prospects of Live Golf because Live Golf is sort of at its – like the best, the best pitch that Live Golf has – is kind of the one we're, we're referencing, which is like we have really good players who are playing each other in a tournament, but that's just a golf tournament. Their whole thing is the is the team, right? It's the team, team, the team, and they 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 absolutely need the team concept to catch on. They need to be able to sell those teams if if the league has any chance. And I don't think that you know proving that your players are still good has any impact on the team concept. In fact, you know, Kepka, the one who was most in the spotlight all week he don't give a shit about the teams like he even says "Oh, the team thing he's a he's old school golfer it's about rugged individualism it's me against everybody else i don't think he has any desire to to go find sponsors for his team or to sign new players like he's out there to play golf and to play golf for himself so it was good for live it was good for those players they definitely felt vindicated like hey i'm still here but i don't think that it's going to bring a lot of people to watch live golf. And I don't think that it's going to uh, invigorate the team composition, which is what they really need to happen.
2: Well, yeah, I I guess I'm maybe you guys who follow golf more closely than I do can kind of give me more historical context. I feel like to me, live golf. I mean, yeah, it's got that a few kind of things they're experimenting with to try and kind of make golf a little bit more, maybe accessible to people who don't necessarily watch golf regularly. But why is live not like, I mean, there's always been other, Golf associations. There's always been other international golf tours going on parallel to the PGA. The Masters has all, and British Open, and these big tournaments have always been a showcase that mixes players like Bernard Longer, who we only saw really for the ma- majors and stuff like that. They were playing on like a European tour. Why is live yeah. golf? Why can't live golf kind of exist as the main international kind of? tour to kind of imperil. I mean I agree I agree. It's less of a pie for PGA. I can see why the PGA specifically is going to such great lengths to you know to, to kind of oppose Live. But as for for uh the viewer of golf, why is Live not just kind of like an international tour that's kind of sustainable and we'll see these guys, you know, four or five times a year that are on it and you know it kind of it's, well, because it's like it's having not, multiple leagues.
5: It's, it's not international and it's not sustainable. So we'll start there. It's, there's eight of 12 events are in the United States. So maybe that – I think it's – there's 14 this year. It's like nine are in the U.S., whatever it might be. That might change going forward. But as of right now, it's still primarily a United States Yeah, I guess tour. I was
2: speaking more of the audience. I mean where they're actually located. It's not like PGA has a monopoly over U.S. soil or something like that. But yeah.
5: Mm, no, but also, I mean, you're talking about sustainable. So, they, I mean, they've, they've paid these guys absurd amounts of money that we've never seen before in golf. With the assumption that they are going to be able to to get that money back when they sell the teams, their model is: we give these guys a bunch of money up front, get them to play, and we get them on these franchises. We build value in these franchises, and then we sell these franchises. That's that's how they plan to make the money back. Because tell you something, the CW deal. They, I mean, I think the the estimates where they spent something like three billion last year on this league. The CW deal is not putting a dent in that, nor are ticket sales. So they're they're depending on selling these teams to some wealthy individual who basically wants a fancy toy and they want to sell sponsorships on the teams. They're, the players are not really allowed to continue to have individual sponsorships. It's, it's kind of the soccer model where, if you know, you want to buy you want to buy space on Dustin Johnson's shirt. You got to buy space on the rest of the three aces as well. And they want to sell merchandise and they want to sell the teams themselves, which they have to have value in order for them to sell. So. You know, as a viewer, I'm, I'm not saying, like, don't watch Liv. You're more than welcome. Anyone can watch whatever they want to watch. I'm just saying, for the financial health of the league, I think they're in serious trouble.
0: So, Dan, let's let's uh, transition a little bit away from Liv, although it was a great storyline watching, the again, as I mentioned, the three ma- three of the major Liv golfers perform so well at the Masters, too. Since, obviously, we're an analytics show, we'd love to get your perspective. Where do you think analytics is in the sport of golf right now? I mean how much are players kind of aware of it? How much are their caddies aware of it? How much Mm -hmm. do you think of, like, I don't hear, like, you know, when they have people mic'd up, I must admit, I don't hear the caddy saying, you know what, if you go for this shot, your expected strokes gained is this or that. I mean, it is a conversation a caddy could have with a player during the actual round. Where do you see analytics in golf right now? Because obviously it's very ripe for analytics being all over the place.
5: Yeah, it's, uh, it depends on the player. So I don't know if you guys watched the Netflix show Full Swing, um, but you should, first of all, and not just because I'm in it, because it's a very good show. But uh, there's, a, there's a player in there, Matt Fitzpatrick, who won last year's US sure. Open, Who who is the most analytical player on the tour. He has, ever since he was 15 years old, he has charted every single shot he's hit, whether it's with friends or whether it's practicing, whether it's in tournaments. And so he's got this massive database that he can control for basically every variable. He can say... You know, on the back nine off Bermuda grass when the wind is off the right, what is my tendency with Nine Iron? Because he has all that data. And so the the personalized kind of cater to his own game data that he's able to access is way more specific than what's available online. He has a guy called Eduardo Molinari. Who, sure, uh, I remember Eduardo. Amateur, yeah. yeah, and Eduardo is – they have a, a program called Statistics Golf that he has created for professional players. So there are some guys who are like that who are – you know, entering all of their rounds into these proprietary programs that are giving them personalized data. Can you ask, can you
0: answer this, us a question? I know in some like sports, like I remember in the NFL, obviously there's some restrictions. Could, a, is there anything that would stop by rule a, I know they can't have distance finders, but is there anything that would stop yeah. a caddy from bringing up her or his cell phone or iPad and have this statistics, uh, you know, golf finder statistics yeah. thing during the actual yeah. round? Would that be, would you, can't, that, you can't do that?
5: Probably couldn't do it with an electronic device, but I know Matt has a piece of paper that he carries with him on his round that basically has expected values from 160 yards. What's the PGA Tour average from in the fairway? What's the PGA Tour average from in the rough? And they, they use course management systems that are based on that information. So there's a very popular one called Decade Golf, which is founded by this guy, Scott Fawcett, who basically created a program based off another guy who's sort of in your field called Mark Brody, who's a statistician. We've had Mark really, so many on many times. Dan,
1: real quickly, the reason – the first time we ever heard of Brody was the first time we ever heard of you. It was your piece on him that brought both of you to our attention two years ago.
5: Yeah. Yeah, Mark is awesome. He you know He wrote Every Shot Counts, which really was a – seminal book on on golf math but yeah there are some guys who are who do carry a sheet that's like you know there's a there's a system decade basically has i don't you know i don't get two in the weeds but eh, maybe i can with you guys but it's like so basically if you're 160 yards in the middle of the fairway decade would say there's a certain minimum number of yards you would need to aim away from the edge of the green so it's like if i'm 160 yards in the fairway um f- four might be the number so four yards is 12 feet. So you're not going to aim 12 feet uh, closer than 12 feet from the edge of the green. So like let's say the pin is eight feet onto the green from the left. You're going to aim four feet right of it, and it's just a math problem. And if it's wind, if it's windy, you give yourself more of a cushion. If there's water left, you give yourself more of a cushion, and there's actual math problems to give you the mathematically optimized target. Um so, yeah, you can get really, really granular, and then you got a guy like uh, Scotty Scheffler who like doesn't pay attention to it at all. You know, it's it's crazy how, how wide the gap is. And one thing that is also interesting is – so Tiger is not really like a stats guy. He doesn't look at them. He doesn't look at any of these things. But Scott Fawcett did a really neat kind of experiment where he went through – um a bunch of his rounds in 2000 and 2001 when he was you know playing arguably his best golf i think that's when he the, the data set he used and he was without even knowing it he was following that system to like 99% you know he was he it, basically the system compared to sort of conventional wisdom would be a lot more aggressive off the tee it's like driver basically everywhere cuz closer is better and a lot more conservative going into greens because greens and regulation and middle of the green and two putting bogey avoidance is the way to shoot better scores. And Tiger was basically following these systems that are based on thousands and thousands of hours of crunching numbers without even knowing it.
1: So Dan, it's amazing. And, and, I, and I love the story on Fawcett it supports Fawcett's stuff. It ties back to the speed conversation we we're having. What, why, why is Jordan not using Scott's stuff They're Even from Dallas. What, what's, <laughs> what's going What doesn't, it, it sounds like basically, basically the way you characterize Jordan's play. He needs more faucet, right?
5: Yeah. You know, it's you, you don't want to mess with what these guys have done and the players that they've been and, and how they've gotten to where they are. And like, you know, the the playing style has to match the personality. So, Matt, you know, Fitzpatrick is a numbers geek. Like, he's he always says that if he wasn't playing a pro golf, he'd be like a data analyst. That's just kind of who he is, that's how his brain operates. Brooks Koepka not like that, you know. He's more of like an old school jock who's like, I don't, I don't need that stuff. You know, just give me a club, I'll figure out how to play. So, yeah, there, there, there should be some sort of. And I think a lot of caddies do pay attention, especially for those type of players who aren't, who are more feel based. The caddies will be, will be more in tune to it, and then kind of filter it into the language that their player likes to speak. But if the player doesn't listen to the caddy, which is what I'm suspecting is happening with Spieth and Greller, then it doesn't really matter what the caddy says, because at the end of the day. The player is the one pulling the
0: trigger. So, Dan, maybe in the last minute or two, what do you forecast for the— just to say how—I'd like to think about the following. Let's put probability on a small number of players. So let's imagine you have John Rahm. You can have Scotty Scheffler. I don't know. Whoever you think is the third-best golfer right now. It could be McElroy. It could be a bunch of other players. Morikawa, et cetera. How many golfers would—we always love asking this question here on Morton Moneyball. So we have three more majors of the year. I'm going to give you yeah. X golfers. And you're going to get a 50 percent chance to win these majors. How many golfers do you need to have? Like, if you give you say 10, you get 10, and I get all the other golfers. How many golfers That's get you to 50 percent probability? That's a good question. It's a really good question. I like to use that. It's a way we like to think about yeah. it in terms of norming it. And
1: give him a tournament in particular. The next major right, we see the PGA. The presented. next major
0: is the PGA, right? Yeah. So yeah, I think
5: I think if you gave me, I would take, I would take Rom. I would take Scheffler. I would take probably Xander Shoffley. And I would take, I think I think five is the answer. Oh, I'll take, but oh I'll, man.
0: I'll, I'll, I'll take, take that bet every time. Uh, yeah, we're going to. Well, all right, all on. right. Who, who, I mean, who else year, do you want? Who else do you want, yeah, who else do you want? five? Do you want Patrick right, Cantlay? I'll
5: take, I'll take Rom. No, I'll take Rom. I mean, Rory's a member at Oak Hill. So I'll take, I'll take Rom. <laughs> I'll take Scheffler, I'll take McElroy, I'll take Shoffley, and I'll take and I'll take Cameron Young. You give me those five players, you guys get everybody else. And I think it's basically (laughs) even.
0: right. well, uh, Deion Simpkins, our associate producer, sound engineer, who makes all this happen, we're going to have you back right after the PGA. We'll be collecting our bets, whatever that means. Maybe it's our beer here next time we're up in Brooklyn or you're down here in Philadelphia, but uh, it sounds great. Well, Dan, we'd like to thank you. We've been joined the last uh, half hour, last quarter by Dan Rappaport. Dan is a golf writer at the uh, pirate ship, as he called it, Barstool Sports. (laughs) He's a co-host of the for play pod longtime friend of the show Dan it's been great having you here on Wharton Moneyball
5: thanks guys thanks for having me happy to do it so this
0: has been another quarter of Wharton Moneyball please stay with us and join us right after the break you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second half of Wharton Moneyball rolling into Q3, second hour here. We do a couple every week on Sirius XM. We're recording this week from the Business Radio Studios in Huntsman Hall at the Wharton School in person for the last time in a while. We'll get back together at some point, but we'll be Zooming for a while. Got the whole crew in here. This is Cade Massey. Shane Jensen's here. Audie Weiner is here. Eric Bradlow is here. You guys can jump in in a way. We'd love it when you reach out to us by email or Twitter. Email is Moneyball at Moneyball at at Wharton.upen.edu. We read everything you send us. We get as much of it as we can on the air. We also follow our guests, tweet about the world of sports analytics. We'd love to hear from you. Give us feedback, ideas, suggestions, whatever you got on Twitter, our handle there, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. This quarter... Our second guest for the week, Alex Kirchner, is here. Alex is a multi sport writer. He's a freelancer, does some work at a number of places, including five thirty eight. He's the co host of the split zone duo, one of his co hosts there, our longtime friend Stephen Godfrey. So if you want more from Alex on the college football front, that's a great way to go. You can follow him on Twitter, Alex underscore Kirschner on Twitter. You can also find him on five thirty eight. Alex, good to see you, man. Thanks for making time for us.
4: Yeah pleasure to be with y'all thank you for thinking of me and having me here absolutely you're down in the dc area is that right are you calling there from I'm, today i am down uh, just down the acela corridor here but you know a lot of a lot of love for for anything Penn. a beloved aunt of mine uh, was a professor at Penn for a lot of years and spent the occasional day around campus and so uh, big fan great. of everything coming out of there well almost well, everything maybe not everyone but most things <laughs>
1: Well, that's some, that's a some big-hearted of you, given that you're. I think you're from Pittsburgh originally, and the Pittsburgh Philly yeah. love is not always like the best-known thing in the world.
4: No, not always. Uh, particularly in, well, I guess in in hockey, it still is. But uh, I guess before my time in the old NL East, the Pirates and Phillies had some things going on too. So, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, the Steelers and the Eagles have a lot of history. So, mm-hmm. you're right. No love between the two sides of Pennsylvania.
1: Well, we're glad you're. We're glad you're outside of that, and you've got some pen fondness. Appreciate it. Listen, you, you cover a lot of different sports, and we have a few different questions for you. A good person to talk to this time of year where there is so much going on. But let's start with the Masters. We are just off the lines with Dan Rappaport, so we just dove deep into the Masters. But we'd love to get your take. You had this cool piece, recent piece on 538, leading into the Masters about the big three, Rom, Scotty Scheffler, and Rory McIlroy. As I was reading that piece, I kept on expecting you to like, take a position. You know, I was looking for the prediction. And of course, you didn't because all the evidence is really complicated, and it wasn't obvious that Rom would come out of those three. Any takes on this side of the tournament?
4: Yeah, it's funny that John Rom wound up being the one of the three who who triumphed triumphed here, because in the immediate weeks leading up to this tournament, despite the fact that he has had the best season of anyone on the PGA Tour, uh, and and with some European tour cameos in there as well. It, it felt like there was the least noise about him mm-hmm. compared to Scheffler, compared to McElroy, uh, maybe inevitable just given the narrative of it all with Scheffler being the defending champion and McElroy being on this nine-year, at this <laughs> point, sort of chaotic hunt for the <laughs> career Grand Slam uh, via a, a Masters championship that he hasn't had yet. So sometimes that's that's just how it works out, and it comes down to striking the ball uh, and, and just being – the most complete mistake-free player around a place like Augusta that we know favors prodigious distance off the tee, uh, which, of course, Rory McIlroy has uh, and, and Rahm and Scheffler have to their own degrees. And it was just an absolute ball-striking clinic. I mean, it's, it's I guess it's easy to win the Masters when you can hit it as squarely and as consistently as John Rahm did uh, over these last four or five days. Yeah, Alex, I would just think also that so many guys hit the ball far.
0: Like, yeah, of course, I'd rather hit it you know Bryson DeChambeau or Rory McIlroy far at 350, but I don't know 320 is not so bad, and these other guys can pump it out 320. Do you think it's also possible? Like if we do a curve of expected score versus driving distance, there probably obviously accuracy matters even more, but there would be a plateau, and so the fact that McIlroy can hit 20 or 30 yards more than a guy that can hit 320, these courses aren't designed for 320 or 350.
4: No, they're not. But I do think that some of these players and and Bryson DeChambeau sort of led this onslaught, if you will, at the 2020 U.S. Open uh, when they played this tournament at uh, I believe it was Winged Foot. Uh, yeah, it was Winged another Foot. Another one. They had a, a different PGA uh, the year prior at Bethpage Black. So those two New York courses that are that are so often associated. Well, what Bryson did was just hit the bar as far as he, as far as he could. Uh, understand that he would be in the rough, and it was this bomb and gouge game. Where he didn't mind losing some spin out of the rough and playing f- uh, from some bad lies because he had figured out that just by virtue of being down there, he'd be able to get pretty close to some pins. Augusta is in a way you know, a diametrically opposite course, but in a way it's very similar uh, in that the – Numbers on this course make it pretty clear that driving distance is king here.
0: You know, at the Masters, driving distance clearly is important because all the par 5s, you know, this is the classic example where I forget i forget exactly which golfer said, you know, basically, it might have been DeChambeau who said the Masters is a par 68. So, you know, it's, you know, here, driving it to the Masters, especially a couple of those, if you can hit the ball out 350, you can reach all the par, and you're in the fairway, you can hit all the par 5s. Mm-hmm. There's clearly an extra 30 or 40 yards on certain holes at the Masters, like especially the par fives, can make a huge difference where you're now shooting into a par five from 180 to 200 yards versus 230.
4: Absolutely. And there are some specific examples of this that I think Augusta has tried to address in the last couple of years uh, the 13th and the 15th holes being the big two, where, you know, coming into this year, uh, 15 is that par five that has the downhill over water. Uh, and they lengthened that hole by, you know, maybe 22, 23 yards a couple of years ago. And the thought was that coming into this tournament that maybe even these best players in the world would would lay up. Uh, and they would hit their first shot somewhere into the fairway. They would hit iron short of the hazard down at the bottom of the hill. Uh, and then they'd come up and try to stick it close and make a putt. Uh, and that just didn't materialize. And the reason it didn't materialize, the reason that these guys were still going for it in two and getting there into uh, is that they just get longer and longer and Mm -hmm. longer and longer. And the golfing gods, the golfing governing bodies have have tried pretty hard to find ways to rein in this kind of distance. And we'll see what they do in the next couple of years with golf ball rollbacks and equipment rollbacks and things of that nature. Uh, But for now, uh, distance is still King, even, you know, at a place like Augusta that uh, that you would think would make it, that you would think would put a premium on being in the fairway because of what we what we know about Augusta when we talk about it, which is, you know, this these brutal greens where you've got to be able to make it spin and stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly true, but if you can hit it far, it turns out that you can make some hay uh, even if you're in uh, well, what, what would usually be called the rough, but what would be, what would be called the second cut at Augusta.
1: Right. All right. So the the other sport most associated with spring beyond Augusta golf is baseball and you've got a piece up maybe a couple of weeks ago now on what you, what we might expect out of 2023 season. You talk about uh Pujols year last year, kind of out of the blue and who else might be set up for such a year now. Can you tell us what you found in, in your, and what you argued there in your article?
4: Yeah. So last year from Albert Pujols was sort of a gift, a gift from above really. Uh, if, if you're, Fan of baseball history, just enjoy enjoy watching a victory lap from one of the greatest hitters who's ever walked the earth, and it came more or less out of nowhere because Albert Pujols hadn't just been not himself over the previous five seven years, but he'd been he'd been bad. You know, one of the things that I looked through in the research for this article was that he had been basically a replacement level player, uh, or even a little bit worse, for a half decade. Uh, And then just rediscovered for three months or so in the middle of his retirement season, which happened to be back home with the team that he came up with, the St. Louis Cardinals. These months of just looking like he looked in the aughts when he came up with this team. He was not quite at his peak. You know, he wasn't operating at maybe the height of his powers. There were years um, when Albert Pujols was better than he was for those months in 2022 – But he was one of the best hitters in baseball, not just one of the best old hitters in baseball, not just having one of the best stretches he'd had in many years, but he was one of the best hitters in the entire world uh, and hitting like his Hall of Fame self at a point when the age curve would tell you that as a 42-year-old, that just shouldn't have happened. And so what I've been interested in is could we ever maybe get something – (laughs) <laughs> parallel to that, okay, um, from someone who is you know on the fringes of Pujols' offensive weight class.
1: Okay, so real quickly before you go into who you who you nominate as candidates, what explanations do we have for that performance from Pujols last year, either from himself or from observers yeah. or from team people? Anything? Do you, do you guys know? I mean, you guys,
0: are... I don't know the answer, but I, I here's what I would guess would be that if you get enough players. With, I mean, if you get enough players that are good and you get enough stretches, then you'll have a big and small P problem. And eventually, someone's going to have a stretch that looks really good over some period of time. Okay. So that yeah. would be my guess. Without reading the article, that's what Adi Weiner would say.
3: No, I mean, to me, looking at Pujols, he had five basically horrible years. And this came right. out of the blue. Age curves, historical regression uh, I don't know where it came from. Quite honestly, yeah, I mean, I, mean it's not I, like he was I think that badly injured in the, those five years. He no, I mean, injured, I,
2: I, but... I see it as mostly random. If there is any kind of like, yeah. you know, uh, the denominator of players that like are really good and then get uh. bad as they get old is pretty large, and so you know, you're okay. Yep. I mean, yep. occasionally you'll just have one of these. Whether well, that's what I'm I, again, again, you know, if we could take lessons from this, from pools last year, and be like, oh wow, actually. You know, he discovered. You know, his his transition back into like good for a half a season is somehow predictive that maybe we'll see that out of Joey Votto or somebody
1: like that. Well, I mean, great! You jumped on it because here are the candidates. All right, that, yeah, I'm, that I'm, Alex I'm gives Love us. to hear this. The, the two he names are Joey Votto <laughs> and Miguel Cabrera. Well, and Votto has been um,
3: generally good. Point. Votto was bad last year, but the previous year's he has been pretty good. Yeah. Cabrera's
0: been bad for He's a been long bad. Time. Yeah. That would be a great comparison if that I were mean, to happen. You
3: know, and one of the things about Cabrera is that, is that I think one of the points of the article he mentioned that Cabrera hits the ball pretty hard is expected. That's the, great, that's the new innovation from the StatCast era, is to pre- figure out your expected weighted on-base percentage based on how hard you hit it and where you hit it. And he's tend to be way lower in actuality, than predicted, which suggests the regression to the mean. the Problem with that, of course, to the mean. But the problem of that, of course, is he's so damn slow and old, and 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 <laughs> and you don't really know if that's the right regression for someone uh, who's hitting in that. But
0: yeah, it's not a bad comparable person because I mean, his career is not as great as Pujols, but it's not that far behind Pujols. I mean, he's got a Hall of Fame career also.
1: Okay, so we're prime for you, Alex. If we have you back here now, we've debated the causes of Pujols, and we've debated the we've prospects. Ca-
2: we've, we've, we've identified a couple players we would love to have something like Pujols happen too. But is there some reason to believe it will happen, to, like that will happen again?
4: No, not really. I, I think that if you squint uh, and you looked at Miguel Cabrera, who's had, you know, a rough start to this year, as you would have expected. And I heard you guys just talking about it a moment ago. There were a number of these years where he was arguably pretty unlucky offensively, um, where even as he declined, he was just hitting balls to gloves uh, and probably should have been a better, closer to league average hitter than he was. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you see it that way, then you could see, all right, well, he fell off a cliff in 2022, but he was hurt that year. Uh, He was playing through injuries. He's obviously been hurt several times in the last few years, but he was playing through it. It seemed like it really bothered him. So maybe the stars will align. Maybe he gets uh, a positive regression uh, in terms of where the ball, you know, the ball having some eyes, uh, and maybe he was never as bad as he looked in 2022. That's a rose-colored glasses Mm -hmm. analysis, uh, Mm -hmm. sort of wish casting for this guy to find something like his old form, but it's not. Impossible. I think it is a little bit easier, as Adi was saying, to see it with Joey Votto, who has been better for a more recent period of time, a prolonged recent period of time. Um, and even as he's pushing 40, you could maybe see it without squinting quite as much that Joey Votto, once he gets healthy, hasn't played yet this year, could put together – you know, a plus-plus offensive season uh, in the Little League ballpark that the Reds play in.
3: (laughs) One of the things that people don't appreciate about baseball in general is how the inter- player variability is so high with uh, intra-player. So intra. Within, intra. within yourself, yeah. in other words, uh, make the assumption that you never change. Your performance on the field just just fluctuates just based on randomness people,
1: so strongly. People get this wrong in every domain of life. Yeah, every We, we type people and we expect performance to be uniform within that type. And in fact, we have all this. And I mean, Eric's about to go into marketing lecture, I promise you. Intra-person variability reliably underestimated. So, uh, where were we going to go? We were just on something else.
3: Well, my question is, are is there any others? You've, you've identified uh, Vado and uh Those and are Kibera. the guys we'd
2: like it to happen to, and certainly they're the de- in the denominator in terms of people. You know, they're players that were, you know, kind of, I guess, whole f- whole f- their peak was Hall of Fame-like, but they haven't have played like that in a while.
3: Right, and I guess we can expand it and say, have there how, how many other people have had a bounce back of the Pujols-like bounce back that happened last year it's pretty darn zero. rare very small like like that is zero but any others who had a big comeback year there was i mean carpenter we got a one of our listeners threw out a carpenter for the yankees had a pretty good year last year from previously bad years. are we but, talking
2: about just last year bad years or yeah, like last kind of year. guy, guys who historically hit well, well uh, that did well kind of in their final sea uh, inordinately well oh in you're gonna bring season. up david well, well, no. i don't know that
0: but i don't know if he I mean, his
2: final season was incredible. historically great but i don't i mean it's not like it was really that wasn't a comeback like it's the previous yeah, back seasons, from Juan, he was fine. You know that I don't think that's even in the same kind of
1: category. A question for all of you guys: What do we know about uh, the change over time in the age curve in baseball? Like, you know, we talk about it with tennis all the time, and I think we're probably seeing it with golf now. Do we see anything comparable in baseball? Where just because of better conditioning, fitness, science, whatever it is, that we're seeing an extension of pushing out of the age curve in some way? Or are they already at the limits of it for their sport?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, I'd be interested in Alex's opinion. I don't know the answer to this, but I would guess that the age curve in baseball is going to move a lot less than some other sports. I just think—
1: Why? Why?
0: You know, the hardest thing to do in sports is to hit the damn fastball and the curveball. It's just a hard thing to do, and just your reflexes slow down. And so you can be in better shape, you can have better conditioning. But I haven't heard anybody—maybe there is. I don't know. Maybe there's a study. I haven't heard anybody say that your reflexes can get faster as you get older, even with proper conditioning. I don't know if that's true.
4: Do we still have— I'm not sure. I'm not sure that we've seen any material or provable change— in the baseball age curve or the golf age curve or any other. But I, I think what we have seen and what would maybe make me wary of thinking that there has been a trend underlying it is just that we've seen some really exceptional athletes who are in the top two or three or four in the history of the sport at what they do have incredible geriatric seasons uh, or geriatric tournaments. I mean, Phil Mickelson won the 2021 PGA then disappeared for two years doing nothing of note uh, in the competitive golf landscape and then finished second at the masters. And I just think he's Phil Mickelson. Um, there was no parallel to what Albert Pujols did last year with the Cardinals. It's never happened in the history of baseball. And the way we know that is there are really only six or seven hitters who could even form a baseline to measure themselves against Pujols um, for the end of their career. Uh And I think, you know, you see this right now or over the last few years in tennis where three of the small handful of greatest men's tennis players and the greatest women's tennis player of all time happen to be having incredible late career runs very close to one another. But, you know, is a Rafa Nadal, Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic an aging curve trend? Or is that just that, you know, we've we've been blessed as sports fans to have I, a, a, I'm gonna, some really exceptional old I, I, guys?
2: Shame. Well, at, but baseball, I think the reason we're not kind of seeing a late – like like a real evolution. I mean, we had an artifact like through science, players artificially lengthened their careers for like twenty years. the The previous generation right. of baseball... we're we're trying to measure the, this new generation of baseball, which is somehow I see. clean With less in quotation marks, <laughs> yeah. compared to this previous one, where like right. so Roger Clemens is probably the closest analogy to Albert Pujols in terms of a player that had an uncharacter a surprisingly dominant late career after kind of Barry Bonds. aging. Well Barry Bonds is dominant throughout. I mean Yeah, but he was absurd. At the yeah, no, night. no, that's right. That's right. So I mean we, we, we and it's kinda of hard now, like, if baseball players are lengthening their careers and trajectories kind of through, I, I guess, the the, yeah, what's the, through the accepted era? But, means. We're trying to compare them to the previous generation where
3: they were already doing this. But, I mean, Alex, I want to ask you directly about tennis. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm exactly. not, I mean baseball has had lots and, lots and lots and lots of players who've gone a long age. And, you know, we have lots of anomalies and Clemens and Bonds, but lots of players have played into their 40s historically. But in tennis, I mean, I've been watching tennis for years, but usually a tennis, the greatest players, the Connors, the McIneros, the Borgs, the Lendels, they were washed up at 30. These okay, guys are so, nearly 40. Oh, Hold on,
1: two two other things here. One, we gotta give props to Alex for going hard on the null hypothesis. We love a we guy do love die the for null. the null hypothesis. My God. It's just randomness, it's natural, no big deal. So props on the and we disagree with you strongly on this one. I mean only but, the only the fact is that we have essentially as you pointed out four is there are
3: so many standard deviations away from the mean. Each but of also, them,
1: but also we have some mechanisms in the case of tennis. We've had the conversations yes. with the people talking about what it used to be like, and people used to just they wear themselves out. There wasn't enough money, and now they step away from tournaments. They literally take they literally take care of better care of themselves than they did in the seventies. And so we have a little bit of theory. Okay, Alex, that's our reaction to the tennis comment.
4: Yeah, and I will I will be honest that I am not a tennis guy, though I've become more of a fan in recent years. But I just, what I know from smart tennis people is that having Rafa and Roger and Djokovic at the same time is not normal in the annals of that sport. Mm, And, you know, we're like, we're sort of living through the days that golf fans live through when Jack and Arnie or Jack and Watson or, you know, Jack and whoever or or, or, or Pete, Phil, and Tiger. And like, so I just have a natural skepticism of assuming that anything that comes out of those couple of dudes means anything for anybody else
1: good we love it great great all right let me change gears one more time and ask you to your kind of home sport again alex is a co-host of a college football podcast this isn't exactly college football season but it's related to college football season because we're really coming up on the nfl draft now as a college football guy anything you have to say about this year's draft do you have a position on which quarterback is going to be the better long-term prospect or in should four
0: of them go really high in the draft
4: yeah i think several of them should go pretty high in the draft uh at least three that i could think of i, I don't know about a fourth I'm, I'm not much of a will levis guy but your mileage may vary um i, I think that the way that i approach quarterbacks in the draft mm-hmm. Has changed a bit as I've been humbled, as so many people have, mm-hmm. by what Josh Allen has turned into. You know, I've been covering college football for a very long time. And until Josh Allen, there had been a rule, with no serious exceptions, mm-hmm. uh, at least in this century, that an NFL quarterback is not going to significantly outperform his college statistics. And Josh Allen was a middle-of-the-pack Mountain mm-hmm. West quarterback mm-hmm. at Wyoming. And I watched Mountain West football. I had a sense of, of what this guy was in college under Craig Bowl, a very good coach who won multiple national championships at North Dakota State. And I thought, well, that's that. Um, like The NFL has fallen in love with this guy because of tools that may never translate to the field. And I don't think he's going to be a very good pick. Um, the Bills picked him and he's one of the great cyborg quarterbacks that I've ever watched. <laughs> right. So that's the preamble to say that I have some humility that I didn't before about the possibility that a toolsy quarterback who didn't really produce in college could be really good in the NFL um, to spin that forward to 2023. That's Anthony Richardson sure. from Florida, who has maybe the greatest you know quote unquote measurables of any quarterback to ever come through the draft. Uh, I think that's very much in play. If you look at the way that this guy runs and jumps um, and also just the way that he throws the ball on camera. And his size. um, Yeah, he's huge. He's huge. Um, So I don't think that it is crazy if a team, well, specifically the Carolina Panthers, um, takes Anthony Richardson first overall. But I still have uh, a little bit of that old-fashioned college football evaluator in me, um, which is to look at the guys who were absolute killers in high-stakes college environments, and that's Bryce Young at Alabama. And that's C.J. Stroud at Ohio State. Uh, I think they're both fantastic. I I just kind of am smitten with Bryce Young as a quarterback. I just think he he's that guy. Uh, you know, there's. It's. I think whether you prefer Bryce Young or Anthony Richardson is a tremendous litmus test for what you value. when you evaluate quarterbacks. It's extraordinary I mean, position.
1: But but Alex, let's yeah. go with Bryce a little bit because he. I mean, how do you feel about the size? I mean, it's hard to get past the size. The guy is a a slight one sixty. And we just haven't oh, seen small. that. I mean, this is like Fran yeah. Tarkenton kind of stuff.
4: He's small. Um, there's there's no way around it. And I, you know, sometimes people might get a bit snarky and over rotate too much against that kind of thing mattering. You know, people will make jokes about, oh, well, his hand size isn't big, so you know, screw this guy. And obviously, they're kidding and they're they're trying to poke fun at the draft industrial complex and the way the NFL values players. But it's not nothing to it's be not, that small. It's not
1: nothing. It's not nothing. When you take the damage, when they take the hits that they do. I mean, how big is Deshaun Watson? Deshaun, I walked past him at the draft one year, and he's surprisingly not that big. And it was a few months after that title game where he just got pummeled. He kept on getting back up, but he just got pummeled by Alabama. And when I walked past him, I thought, that guy's going to be an NFL quarterback. So he's not, he's bigger than Bryce Young. It's not that much bigger than Bryce Young. Oh, yeah.
4: Yeah. Deshaun Watson is definitely bigger than Bryce Young. And and so is CJ Stroud. So is Will Levis. So is Anthony Richardson. I. They list the Sean Watson
0: is... here on NFL.com as 6'3", 225. Jeez. Okay. If that's so, true, that's a lot different than a lot Bryce bigger. Young, who's 5'11", 185. Yeah, what's yeah. like Kyler what, what Murray? I, what, I mean. Kyler Murray's like 5'9", 205. Okay.
1: But he's also, like, a I don't know, like... He's just, he's so escapable compared to – Bryce Young is escapable, but he's not Kyler Murray yeah. kind of no, uh, I understand jo- Johnny that. Manziel escapable. So
0: the only – the guy you'd have to say just if he can bulk up and size-wise, your best hope scenario, in my view, is that he's Drew Brees. Mm-hmm. That would be, well, I mean, that would be phenomenal. If mean, he does for 70,000 yards. I'd even a, take
2: a Doug Flutie career, you know. No, I mean, uh, no, no, no not, wanna, not with number one it, you overall in the draft. If you, no, drive, I guess you don't want
0: Flutie true. overall number one. I mean, if that's it. So, Alex, what do you think? Are you concerned at all? Just, you know, I mean, just one hit. Uh, as Cade said, he does have elusiveness, but not great. He's not Lamar Jackson elusiveness or speed. So wh- what do you think?
4: No, and and he's not going to be a running quarterback in the NFL, uh, in any significant measure, in my opinion. I mean, he has he has the athleticism, but I just think the way that you protect a guy like that, and the way that you maximize his value, is not by running him around the field even five, ten times a game. I think it might be one or two or three. Uh, I would pick him anyway, frankly, because that's just uh because I'm not the one making the pick, frankly, and I think the upside is, is what you said. I mean, he could have a historically good NFL career, uh, and I'm. Significant believer in the character, the work ethic, the yeah. ability to see the field and to process things. I mean, remember, he learned not only under Nick Saban, but under Bill O'Brien, who was not the greatest NFL GM in the world, <laughs> but certainly understands NFL quarterback play uh and worked with Tom Brady, worked under Bill Balachek. So I'm a big Bryce Young believer. I think he's going to be great and I would pick him. But that's easier to say when, when you're not uh, pulling the
1: trigger. When you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. When yeah. you're
4: not writing the checks and and turning in the card. Alex, characterize
1: one more dimension of his play, and, and just this conversation is revealing how many dimensions matter in this in this decision because there are many more than we tend to be able to hold in our head at one time. You've already mentioned processing the feel, for example. We've come to believe that's really important. We've talked about escapability. We've raised questions about durability. What about just flat out arm strength? Where where would you put him on the arm strength? Dimensions. Who would you compare that to? Because Eric brought up Breeze. Breeze has plenty of an arm, but he just unbelievable accuracy. I, I've, we've seen Young do amazing things in college, but where would we put the arm strength in the end?
4: I think more Breeze like. Uh, I, I don't. I don't think that Bryce Young has a hand cannon like he is. The thing. The thing that will wow you about him is not the miles per hour that the cameras clock the ball coming out of his hand at. I I think it is the processing. It's the seeing of the field uh, and it's just the poise that he plays the position with. I mean, Mm -hmm. there is never a moment where Bryce young isn't exceptionally poised and Mm -hmm. and he's not the only quarterback that I would, you know, attribute that to. I I think that CJ Stroud is similar in that regard. CJ Stroud took whatever was thrown at him at Ohio state and wasn't the reason that Ohio state fell short of its goals while he was there. Um, That tended to be a problem with their defense rather than their offense. So I just think that, you know, while I respect and understand why people want the traits on traits on traits physically, uh, there is a little bit more to the position, and, and it's not like Bryce Young is poor on those other traits. I mean, he's still quite an athlete. It was a former five star, number one, I think number two overall recruit in the country, uh, and has plenty of that too.
2: What how how can you kind of really measure poise? I mean, I under, I understand poise as a concept but measuring it say for example in a way you could compare between players especially players that have been on top teams so like i guess i would sort of you know what what would you say to the argument that like you know it's a lot easier to appear poised when you're running alabama's offense or ohio state's offense than it is you know i don't know when you're running around the ch- yeah kentucky's, kentucky's offense or something like that yeah
4: no, it's and it's true and and Florida's wide receivers if you talk to a Florida fan they'll tell you that they were terrible last year for Anthony Richardson like mm-hmm. it was it was not a position of strength. Uh I think you look at how these players react in the tensest moments of their games. And and I'm not uh like I know what podcast I'm on. I am not a huge believer in, you know, the quote-unquote clutch factor, the clutch gene or anything like that. Um but you know, I watched Bryce Young do enough wowing things in moments where he and Alabama looked like they were screwed. That I tend to believe that there's something there in um, ability to continue to be yourself in really difficult moments, which there are going to be quite a few of uh, in, in an effort career.
0: So, Alex, let me frame just one quick question. You can even answer this yes, no, if you want. We're in a business school. We, treat the con- we teach the concepts of risk and return. Let's imagine because of the measurables, Bryce Young has higher variance maybe than some others. Do you think the risk is worth it? In your mind, is his upside so much better than the other three quarterbacks that you're willing to take the potential risk? And maybe the answer is yes.
4: I think it's. I would actually take the alternative path to arguing for Bryce Young. Uh, no, to answer your question, because I think Anthony Richardson might have the highest upside of any of them. Just if you look at the way he can chuck the rock and the way he can run. And so how to big you, he Bryce is.
0: Young is potentially a lower peak option, but lower variance. And that's what you're betting on.
4: I think that if Bryce Young's body does not completely break down, the chances that he is not a top 10 NFL quarterback are very low. And I think that in the draft, in the run up to the draft, you know, we tend to focus a lot on the risk element of it um, and, and what happens if his body breaks down because he's so small. Um, but I'm a believer in this guy. I, I really am. I think that if he's healthy and that's, you know, I, of course we, we all wish that, but you never do know. Yeah. I think if he's healthy, I, I really believe he's going to have a career as one of the top third of quarterbacks in the NFL. I, I think he's a special player.
1: Wow. Okay. Good note to end on Alex. Thank you for making time for us today. Good luck with what you're doing, especially in the run-up to the NFL draft. In the next couple of weeks.
4: Thanks. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. Alex Kirshner, freelance writer. You can find his work on 538. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle up there, Alex underscore Kirshner. He is co host of the Split Zone Duo, which we're always happy to recommend podcasts on college football, including our longtime friend Stephen Godfrey. That was Alex Kirshner. And that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break.
0: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the fourth quarter, fourth and final quarter of Wharton Moneyball this week. Kate Massey in here hosting with the whole team. Audie Weiner is here. Shane Jensen is here. Eric Bradlow is here. Dion Simpkins is here, associate producer, sound engineer in the studio, bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour. Appreciate y'all listening. This is going to be an open segment, open lines. We're just off the phone with Alex Kirshner. One thought listening to Alex talk about, man, he went to the mat on Bryce Young. I mean, to the mat. And I ended up wondering how often is it that deep college football expertise, deep college football fandom, how often is that an asset or a liability when it comes to judging a college football player's prospects in the NFL?
2: Yeah, I kind of, I, I mean, I, I think it's mostly an asset. Uh, because of obviously, it gives you the kind of experience and expertise, and you know, Alex did talk about being kind of humbled by past experiences with prognostication. But I think you know the part that you, I, I think the part that have it being deep, uh, deeply experienced in a in a sport can give you is almost kind of the the hubris to forget about those humbling experiences and and sort of I I guess maybe maybe there's a element, you know, an overconfidence element to things that kind of comes from a deep knowledge. I, you know, if you can kind of pull up from your vast experience a bunch of players that fit, fit, you know, kind of like whatever, you know, you believe in already, maybe that kind of can mislead you in, in some cases. Yeah, I, don't know. I was
0: just going to say, I can't, the, the only, the major concern I have, I'll just go back to what Adi has said for nine years now on the show about base rates. So tell me one quarterback that's 5'11", 185 pounds, that's been wildly successful in the NFL? Just tell me one. You could say Drew Brees. No, Drew Brees was six feet two ten. You could say Kyler Murray. I mean, Kyler Murray's a different size, and he's not wildly successful. I just don't hold know on, who that exemplar okay, is. I, you,
1: you didn't, Assuming those dimensions are important. Well, so, I, I mean, I, I don't know why I, I said Fran Tarkin randomly, but I think Fran Tarkin was shorter than that. And he's super mobile, obviously, good arm. I, that may not be the craziest thought in the world, actually, but... You just took... 50 you, years ago, but yeah. Fair enough, but but I mean, I would take Fran Tarkin in, in this day and age more than... Well, I don't know. He, uh, it'd be interesting to know what kind of passer he was, but but Eric, I, I will take his... He has much better escapability than Drew Brees. So I might give... For sure. And he'll get 10 pounds on him. He'll catch him in weight. I'll give away the inch... For That's the escape, for the escapability, yeah, so I no, thought-
2: and, and and I mean, I think you, you're, I mean, you are focusing on his particular attributes, which of course are relevant to this discussion because we're talking about his career. But I mean, I, I if you kind of. Step back to the like slightly more general thing of you know have there been, can we come up with a lot of historical cases where you know uh, a quarterback's physical at- attributes end up not being the most kind of predictive element of their success the, the poise or or kind of being able to process the field I mean then it's kind of like you know then there's a, a much wider pool right. of players Joe you know Montana
0: I mean? would have to be in that Tom loop.
2: Brady was obviously somebody who draft at the draft nobody thought anything physically of him and it ended up not being you know, particularly important. But, I mean, you know, that's... He's an exception for a lot of other... I, I mean, you know, race, I hope but... all
0: I'm saying is, given what uh, Alex had to say about his arm strength, too, I really do hope he's as accurate as Drew Brees.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I, that's yeah, the greatest he's,
0: quarterback of all time in terms of accuracy.
1: I... In the end, and with you. And if I had to place ships pro or con, I'm going to go con. I'm going to short Brass Young. But I I realize I I know, I mean, I realize the uncertainty is off the charts with all these things. So I I, have very little confidence.
0: And I thought it was fascinating. It's it's what the show's all about because Alex said, and he's entitled to his opinion. His opinion may be much more informed than ours his comment was he saw low uncertainty in Bryce Young I see massive uncertainty in Bryce young and so to me that's the only difference because if you believe it's the massive uncertainty you don't pick them
1: all right so gentlemen the NBA playoffs are set as of the weekend any I've got a I've got I mind there was a great ESPN article kind of primer on the playoffs dropped a bunch of data on us I've got some trivia for you coming out of the article but just as we lead into it, any last-minute observations, especially on the pairings and the seeds as things firmed up out West?
0: So I've got one. So in the East, I think, it's—I think Shane, you would agree with this. If I gave you the top three seeds in the East, the Bucks, Celtics, Sixers, you would take them over the field by far. Yes. Those One of those three to make yeah. it. All right. Listen to this. In the West, I'm going to give you two groups of three teams, and you tell me which of the group of three you would take. Okay? You can have the Nuggets, the Grizzlies, and the Kings— or you can have the Suns, the Clippers, and the Warriors. Which group of three are you going to take?
2: The one with the Warriors in it.
0: Yeah. And that's that four, Obviously. five. Right. And that's the four, five, and six seed. So yeah. that's my point. I love the West because the top three seeds I don't think would be favored against any of okay, four, so, five, and six right So hold on. Right hold on, hold on.
1: The, other, the other little heuristic there is I'll take the one with Kevin Durant in it. And, both and that's the also the Suns. both and the Warriors get you that second set. But how about... And the
0: Clippers. You know, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard. That's not, and now Russell Westbrook. That's not a horrible set either with the Clippers.
1: All true, but what about Nikola Jokic? I mean, you're not. You're just going to walk away from the. I will because I'll
0: tell you why. I was listening to analysis of this. Apparently, I didn't realize is his postseason stats are not great. So again, when it's when he's playing against really elite teams, he's actually not that great. So I, I do diminish him because I don't think again. When your best player is your center, especially in the playoffs, I think it's going to be a challenge. I do think
1: they're getting some offensive help back for the playoffs. And so he might, you know, if he's the only person the other team but has again, to worry about. But again, it's funny. About, it took
0: Shane, and I agree with Shane, it took him five seconds to say Celt, Bucks Celtics, Sixers. And it took him less than that to say, no, i take the 4, 5, and 6 seed in the West yeah. over the 1, 2, and 3. And it's not
1: close. Well, it makes, I mean, the West is going to be definitely an interesting That's why
0: it's so much fun. Yeah.
1: So speaking of Jokic, did you note that he ended the season just shy of averaging a triple-double? 24.5 points a game, 11.8 rebounds, but only 9.8. If we're going to celebrate, I mean, the guy barely misses an averaging for a season Barely misses. We got to give him credit. Name the two other people in the history of the NBA who have averaged for an entire season a triple. But well,
0: we know the answer. It's Russell Westbrook and Oscar Robertson. <laughs> One of us knows the answer. <laughs> no, I mean that's I, I, I knew mean, I knew Russell
2: Westbrook because I remember him doing that. It wasn't that long ago he did that. Yeah. right? Well, no,
0: he just did. He did a, two seasons or
2: three yeah, seasons yeah, yeah, in a yeah, yeah, row. Yeah. So Oscar,
0: Oscar Robinson, I would not have come Robertson,
2: up. Robertson, I,
1: yeah. I'm the other way around. I knew Oscar. He's famous for having been that kind of player, but um, I had forgotten about the Russell Westbrook thing. All right, let's do a few more. You talked about Jokic suffering in the playoffs, who is the who are the two players who among twenty point per game scorers actually increase their points, rebounds, and assists in the postseason? There are two active players who are relatively high scorers, 20 points per game. Active, well scoring players who have career averages points, rebounds, and assists per game higher in the postseason. Wow. So I'll just get they're hard to guess, right? So Jimmy Butler and Paul George. So Paul George, I think, is hurt out for now. He might be out for the playoffs.
0: Yeah, now that's a fascinating one, because Jimmy Butler, matter of fact, I might have guessed Butler, because I thought I heard that stat just recently. Most people would say, if you think about Paul George's career... Possibly Hall of Fame career, but terrible in the big moment. And now you're telling yeah, no, me exactly. all I mean, three I of his basic stats players that were
2: somehow more maligned. even more awesome in the playoffs. And Paul George is no, certainly he's not
0: what comes into for mind, his yeah. big game playing. Yeah. And now you're telling me his points, rebounds, and assists all go up in the playoffs. One of
1: two active players, one of two active. players. No, no, players. I'm
0: saying that's good. Ah, that's a, good. Yeah, that's yeah, a yeah, surprise. Be, all right, that's so, a good trivia. Is it
1: just trans variation. Are we saying something meaningful? It depends here. on how big the sample is, and I don't have. I don't have information Well, here's. I'll give you an alternative explanation. No, no, at least. 100 playoff games. There is a sample ah, size. Okay. That's yeah. not chance No, variation. the only
0: explanation, it's not the only, one explanation you could give is obviously rosters shorten in the postseason. So somebody has to shoot the ball. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in his, in Paul George's case, it doesn't explain why Paul George, but it does explain why there'd be any players who at least score more, rebound more. They just play more minutes. You just play a lot more minutes in the playoffs. So the, here's okay, the interesting that's question. Good. That's good. Proportionally, yeah. if you just took the ratio of minutes, regular yeah. season, then is there anybody well, that averages more per minute? Yeah, it, yeah efficiency, probably.
2: Because yeah. yeah. you efficiency. are playing only against better teams. Efficiency should, all the things being equal, go down. Deep, go down.
1: And both those guys you could see getting more minutes in the playoff games. That's interesting. But let's, I mean, look, but they are, the, here's the, but hold on, it's a relative stat. It's the only two that have gone up. And so if it's all about minutes, then everybody else would be going up as well.
0: And that that's not is true case. too.
1: All right, staying in the West, just want to observe, that with the Kings making the playoffs, first time since 06, they broke the longest active drought in all four North American sports leagues. Yep. So it's not just wow. basketball. It's they, The Mariners had just cleaned out the baseball one, and now it was the Kings holding the title. They have dropped it. Last one in the and West. And their present
0: is they get to play the Warriors in the first round.
1: That's right. So speaking of the Warriors. This is going to be a good one for you, Eric. All right. Um, the big three from the Warriors, Curry, Green, and Thompson, have won 93 playoff games together. This is the third most by any trio in NBA postseason history. Name the other trios.
0: Well, so I was going to say, uh, like, I don't know, Russell, Koozie, and somebody. But the problem is they didn't play as many games back not then. Not as
1: many series. Not as right. many
0: series back then. That's so, right. so I'm not going to pick them. Good. Um, I don't know. a Bird, McHale, and Parrish in that list?
1: It's not, but it's a reasonable guess. Okay. Uh, but you're same era, just for Magic, Magic. <laughs> Kareem, and Worthy. Yeah. <laughs> they're number two. Magic, Magic, Kareem, and Michael Cooper. Oh, Worthy Cooper. wasn't out there for all those things. Yeah. Uh, they're with 110, so it's wide, still quite a bit higher than the Warriors guys. But they're number two. Who's number one?
0: Hmm. The top three guys. I think less, went,
1: you've been talking about flashy people. I think not flashy.
0: Not flashy. Oh, uh can you give me the era
1: yeah it's the same pretty modern who's the least flashy multi-title holder in nba history
0: Oh, uh, the, spur- oh,
2: what's the Spurs. It's
1: so, first. so it's
0: David Robinson. Oh, Tony Parker, Robinson, and uh, uh, you're,
1: you're Duncan, not Robinson. Duncan, Duncan, not Duncan. Duncan,
0: Duncan, Duncan Ginobili.
1: Duncan Ginobili Parker, number oh. one hundred and twenty-five. You forgot yeah. the whole era. They're so not flashy. You forgot them. <laughs> well, They'd I red. know
0: I can count to five, and he's got five rings. Tim
1: Duncan <laughs> yeah, I was got five say, rings. They,
0: they, they snuck up on us
2: again, just like they kept sneaking up. You like, know, he's probably not time? that
0: far away from that record too. He didn't say wins championships. But if you took Carl uh, Malone, John Stockton, and uh, I forget who their third player was. They had a third guy. that oh, uh, Russell or... No. Uh, no, it wasn't Russell. The, it was the,
1: a, the white guy that shot from outside. Elo? No. The Jazz?
0: Yeah, the Jazz. Come on. Either way, they they had another player. But you would think that they would be up there somewhere on the list, too. But that's Here, a good... I, I like if, that stuff. Gi-
1: I'll give you one from those guys. What, what do you think a reasonable... Season-long, like, how often does a team shoot 50% from the field for the season? A team? A team.
0: Has it ever happened?
1: It's happened twice, including this year. So the Nuggets just did it. First team since this other team who has a season record, 51.4 is the high. That's the Jazz. 95, 96, I think, Jazz. The team you're wow. talking about. Oh, one, wow. one, of the, one of the teams that you're talking about. So I didn't realize that it was that rare that you'd shoot 50% for the season for the field, for the field goal percentage. That's just like a calibration. Well, bench. here's the thing. Here's what helpful. I do
0: know. John Stockton was above 50%. Obviously, Carl Malone took almost all of his shots inside yeah, the paint. Guys, those so two guys. So they're going to take over half, the sh- probably half, oh, not half, but 40, 50% of the shots of the team. Yeah. They also had Craig Elo, who was a, brilliant shooter as well i
1: didn't think of him as a long time jazz guy
0: not long time but for he for, i think he was on that team either somebody way
1: somebody look up the third highest scorer well they had the big galoot underneath to play next Martina. to malone no another galoot and then they had this great scorer they had this great outside scorer out not stockton okay so that i'm blanking on his name all right let's jump to the east staying with duos so Tatum and Brown, you talked, about the, you talked about the Celtics earlier. Tatum and Brown just became the second pair of Celtics to average 25 points per game in the same season. The only other pair to have done that, I didn't know this, Bird and McHale. That's, I would have thought it would have happened before. Bird and McHale were the only other pair, 86-87 season, to have averaged 25 or more.
0: Tatum, well, the guy you're thinking about on the Jazz, by was Jeff Hornacek. Yeah,
1: Hornacek. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's
2: right.
0: Jeff Hornacek.
1: Um, and Tatum is the first Celtic ever to average at least 30 points. Wow, so here's, it's
2: amazing considering. no, many, considering you know, some who of the came Celtics. from there,
1: no, it's unbelievable. But yeah. but here's here's what I'm going into. Tatum and Brown have scored at least 25 points in the same mm-hmm. game 33 times this season. It's almost half the times. Tatum and Brown scored 25 points or more in the same game 33 times. Most by a duo since. Name the duo. Just start at the top of the list. Like you don't, you don't have to be creative about this one. Who do you think it was? The one that like Magic and Kareem, or something like that. No, but could...
0: Magic wasn't a great scorer, so I would not have listed that. I would say I wouldn't have said Kareem okay. and anybody because he didn't have another yeah. great scorer with him. This is a
1: classic bad But situation. Could be Robin like Wilt situation. and Oscar. Newer, newer, newer
0: than that. Uh, I'm trying to think who are two great scorers. Well, it, it could be Curry and Thompson.
1: Could have been Shaquille and Kobe. Shaquille oh, and Kobe, oh, 2000, man. 2001. So no, has happened a, yeah, in 21 yeah. years. Wow, can amazing. you imagine that? All right, so let's stay. Come back. We're going to end at home with a few Sixers bits. Okay. Speaking of duos, Embiid and Harden. Embiid and Harden. First, uh, well, I do know the
0: first duo, maybe ever, to lead in scoring, which was Embiid, and assists, which was Harden. If it's not the first ever, it's the first in a long time.
1: First in a long time, but can you name the previous time? It's the first time in, um, let's say you know a long time more than 40 40 40 30 40 50 years you're not going to get this one
0: well the only reason I, I i have an outside shot of getting it there was a year where wilt led the league in assists
1: you're obsessed with will
0: and there is a league there's a year where nate archibald led the league in assists so is it nate archibald was mm-hmm. nate archibald no, one of the two you,
1: this is unfair you wouldn't get oh. it back to san antonio george gervin and johnny moore no one even remembers johnny moore but wow. george gervin ice man okay but there's a related one Embiid, first center to win consecutive scoring titles since, this is old, Bob friggin McAdoo in 73 through 76. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Okay, final one. This is an easy one. Philly, 12 straight playoff appearances without reaching the conference finals. Did you realize this? This is second longest active drought in without the Without reaching
0: even the conference without finals. Without the conference wow. finals. That's only, interesting.
1: Only the Washington R- Wizards, with 17, have a longer streak going right now. 12 years in the playoffs without making the conference finals.
0: That's Jeez. quite hard to do. Yeah, yeah, seriously.
2: I want them to do... Another thing that's going to be, I guess, kind of hard to do, just to kind of complete it, is they need to get... I mean, the Philly streak <laughs> we got going right now is them getting to the finals and then losing.
0: And let's remember, I was at those... I was at the World Series game in Houston yeah. where they lost. I was at the Super Bowl where they lost. I've promised my son, Zach. Because si- Zach, Zach and I were at both. I was at the Super Bowl with all my kids, but only Zach and I went to Houston. Wherever the Sixers are for the, for the NBA Finals, we're game. going. I have to go.
3: Well, you might be I'm the for that. I would love for the Sixers to win it all just for the By the way, but... just to
0: let you know, it's likely to go to 13 because I don't see them beating the Celtics or the Bucks. So that's the problem. To go to the conference finals, they're going to have to beat the celtics they're going to be that they're mm-hmm. the, the yeah. Celt- and, and, sixers are three the celtics well, are the two unless
1: one of those teams gets knocked off shockingly, not going to happen yeah, yeah. not it before that no way least likely but sport the, for upsets yeah but the sixers have gone toe-to-toe with these teams mm-hmm. in this i like them season against the
0: celtics a lot better than i like them against the bucks because mm-hmm. i just think i think the bucks are a juggernaut look i think if chris yeah. middleton hadn't been injured last year the bucks would be going for three straight titles yeah. i think i love the way that team is built uh, actually, if you look at their distribution of points this year, defensive efficiency—it's their best season they've ever had. I think this is a better Bucks team than the C team we've seen the last two years.
1: Is there any—is there any psychology to um, the rivalry within conference? You know, we've, we've seen these over the years. You know, the, the, the Bulls having to get past the Pistons, and is there anything to the extra motivation the Celtics will have playing the? the bucks having been knocked out in the finals in such a great finals conference finals last year.
0: That's not enough momentum. I think those two teams, I just think we'll just find out which team's better. I don't think I think they both have wins against each other. One went to the finals and won the previous year, one went to the finals last year and lost. I think it's from that point of view they both are they know they're the two best teams in the Eastern Conference. I don't see momentum one way or the other. I just think the bucks are a more balanced better team. I don't trust anybody on the Celtics except for Tatum, Brown, and at times Marcus Smart. The rest of the team, I'm just not confident. And the Bucks go seven or eight guys deep that I trust them in their role.
1: I, the, the, I just have an intrinsic reaction against that degree of confidence. Even in the NBA, given how good all three teams are, even the Sixers. Mm-hmm. Now, even in the NBA, I think it's not quite as deterministic as we tend to think that it is Ahead of time. Guys, we've only got a few minutes left, but I know there are a couple of baseball storylines that we didn't quite get to in Q1 that are still of interest. So, for example, there's a team in yeah. Florida playing some serious baseball, and <laughs> Otani's already doing Otani things. Yeah, o-
2: Otani's already got 1.1 war for the season. It's incredible. How do you do that in eight games? I will well, tell you two, how you two, do that. You can that. do it. Two starting, two extraordinary good starting pitching, two, two starting two starts, and batting with an OPS of over one point, like <laughs> yeah, zero one right now. How many? Not so much. It might at even bats? Be two.
1: <laughs> so is he DHing? He like every, is he DHing every game that he doesn't pitch? Yeah,
2: basically. Yeah. They're trying to play him as often as possible. Him being the best. Player He's ridiculous. In baseball. And then his third it... straight MVP season is off to a great start
1: how many is he oh. actually he's not one he's he's won any he's, he's won one he's won one he won one judge he's, he's won making, a, he's season, making right? a knock on judge yeah I no, I so am. what's what is the how does the war compare for the best pitcher outing possible or you know the best that we observe I know a lot and, about and this and the best batting um, game possible like just the is it is oh, it a, is it a quarter for a
3: bad? Is it the best? So here, this is controversial because war is not calculated as a summary statistic; it's an average. So actually, I and a student have a paper on doing war on a per game basis. The most you could get in a in a in a war for a perfect game would get you about point
1: six of a war. Okay. And what's the best batting performance you could get, probably?
3: Well, I mean, it's hard to say. I, obviously, if you hit four home runs, that's probably give you a, a, at least a half a war right there. So. Okay, so you can't But nobody get that. does that. The problem with that is that the best batting performances
1: are, are possible, well, but so there th- are so many so standard I want, deviations. Like, I want like a 95th percentile pitching performance and a 95th percentile batting performance. How do get calibrated on this That's board. a good question. I'm going to come back with an so answer.
0: So your comment is, Bob Gibson, 1968, most people consider the best. Or let's even say uh, Pedro Martinez, 19, whatever. 99, whatever year that was. That's the
3: best season ever. Okay,
0: what war does he get versus, let's say, a war that you know, Ted Williams got in 1941. They're both around like
2: 10 to 12.
0: Despite Williams played every day and Pedro only yep. pitched one out of every no, five games. No, so Pedro
3: would be probably under 10. That's because, what I'm saying. Because of that. That's
0: why I'm asking. I think um, I've still got in front of me if you uh,
3: And first of all, let's just get out there. War is not a counting stat. It has a huge variance depending on how you calculate it, what do you use, what con- yeah. adjustments you make. But I'm it's saying
1: not playing something...
0: four times as often has to matter.
1: But, that, but that's why I assume yeah, that but batting picture... doesn't stack up yeah, as much. Yeah, but I mean, it, the, for that yeah. game,
2: you're four times as important as every yeah. other hitter. That's right. When you yeah. are for the games that you yeah. play, yeah. you're obviously uh, uh, determined the game. Basically,
1: okay. Real quickly on the Diamondbacks. You or mean the, the Devil rays? Not the Devil Rays.
2: The Rays. Just <laughs> the Rays. I wish they were still ten zero.
1: It's twenty seven. Twenty
2: seven innings scoreless. Uh, they they haven't given up a run in the last twenty seven innings.
1: Is this magic? They're the qu- they're the most quant team in the league. Have they figured they something are. out? Go, All right, guys. That's been another Wharton Longbell. Another two hours of sports analytics. Thank you for being here from the whole crew. Adi, Shane, Eric, Cade. Appreciate y'all listening. Dion Simpkins, thanks for all the help, man, making it happen. Maddie D, keeping us on the straight and narrow. Much appreciated. You guys come back and join us next time between now and then. Enjoy your sports.